Hello everyone and welcome. Today is Wednesday the 29th of August 2012 and you are listening to episode number 31. I'm Ivanius and this is Through the Palantir, Lotro from a Different Perspective. Alright, before we get started off this particular time around, I need to go ahead and do a quick little disclamation. Through the Palantir does not own in any way, shape, or form, or imagine to own the intellectual properties that are discussed on this show, meaning Lord of the Rings Online and Lord of the Rings. Those are owned by Turbine, Warner Brothers, Salzance Corporation, etc., etc., etc. We make no money off of this whole thing. The purpose of the podcast is to entertain and inform people. Anyway, starting off, we're going to go into the what I have been doing. First off, I need to say that the Summer Festival launched, which last episode I had kind of predicted it wasn't going to actually happen because of how slow the thing was with coming out. But, no, it has actually launched, and so I've spent quite a bit of time doing a Spring Festival. Unfortunately, the dwarf races have been bugged for over one week. They do not work properly. The NPCs spawn in when it's time to place your bets, and despawn as soon as the race starts, including the horse that leads you into the new zone. Which is something that they've done differently this year, is they've created a separated zone for the races, so instead of them being just out in front of Thorin's hall right on the stairs and being just a bit north of the party tree, they actually take place in their own separated instances that you get to by a special horse that's at the stable master at Mickle Delving and at Thorin's Gate. But the dwarf ones don't work. They've also added a couple more of the uh, scavenger hunt quests, which I've been pretty happy with, but at the same time they lower the amount of tokens that you get from them. So you only get one token for scavenger quest, whereas it used to be two. Two other things that they've done is they've increased the amount of tokens you get when you win. So you pick up six tokens, whereas before I think it might have been two or four. I can't quite remember off the top of my head. I actually kind of want to say it was two, because I think it was two for doing a, a gathering and two for doing the races. But at the same time, they've increased the prices of the horses. Uh, the new horse this year takes two race tokens and 40 of your festival tokens. The one from last year takes one race token and 20 tokens, so it could take a while more. Uh, the one other nice thing they have done is they made it so that even when you lose the race, you still get something. Uh, they have a consolation box there. Typically, you get one token. Occasionally, you'll pull two out of there. That's all you get. Now, just like with the Farmer's Fair, they're using the uh, new store item, the festival token thing that can be bought, can be bought in the store. What's really nice about this is that it makes it so that it is universal currency for the festival. So I started out with three extra ones on my dwarf because I'd been at the Harvest Festival, as I said last time. But it also means that for the dwarf races, even though they're messed up and you can only get in there for a short time, you can pick up the tokens from the dwarf race and use them at the Hobbit race, which has really been helping a lot of people out, and I've been stockpiling as well. The other nice thing is you can stockpile these things because... You can pick up two tokens for free from both those vendors every two hours, and they'll be good for any festival that accepts them. So you can amass a, a good little stockpile if you're uh, careful about that and make sure to hit those vendors and that little quest up as often as you can when you're in-game, which I've, I've been amassing them quite a bit with the, the intention of getting to the dwarf races if they fix them, and otherwise just having them on hand for general utility. Now, as far as what I actually have done with the festival, I picked up both horses on my captain and my guardian. My captain, I finally finished the Lucky Duck thing. If you remember, I don't know how many episodes ago, when I was talking about how I should have had that title, but there was, uh, I was robbed of it. Well, he finally has it. Uh, the, the dwarf had a really tough time going my guardian. <laughs> really hard time finishing that new deed they have, the too much uh, running and well, much eating and much running and then much drinking much running is impossible to do because the races are messed up i just had a t terrible time with it I, I had horrible atrocious luck with the races for quite a while i finally managed to hit a three win streak and finish that off on him and i was very happy when it happened uh, my captain has been working away at it he's doing okay he's got two of the hobbits finished off he needs one more on mudrick rumble two more wins with daffodilly to get him that deed completed once again, Daffodilly is holding him up. That hobbit just cannot race properly. Uh, actually, it's all random chance-based. I might talk about that 
sometime later. I don't know. We'll see how I'm feeling in 20 or 30 minutes as I cut on the podcast. Or if I edit this entirely. Uh, in addition to that, I did a little bit of the fishing. I actually finished off the fishing deeds the last time I was really in the Summer Festival with both those characters. So I just did that to pick up a few extra tokens while I was working towards those things. I also picked up a map of the Etmores, where they've had those maps around since the 5th uh, anniversary festival, I believe. Maybe a little bit earlier. I haven't really done anything with the maps until now, but I picked that up and was finally able to replace the uh, stupid little tapestry I had hanging in my house with a, a map. Which is good. <laughs> also did a little bit more redecorating around my house. So I, I like how it looks now. I've put in some fountains and water features. It works. I've also been doing some instances with my guardian. I did all three Isengard instances in one run on a particular day. I got a captain and I picked up a warden as well. We ran through all three of them. My guardian is still so pitifully geared. It's just painful to have to watch. I tried to do a kinship run of Fornost with him and we just had a lot of problems. I, there were two guardians in there, I was one of them. We had a captain, a lore master, and a pair of minstrels. And we just had a, quite a bit of trouble throughout the entire thing. There, were, there was issues with aggro holding and with durability on the tanks, mainly me really. Then people just getting killed and we wiped a lot of times in there. We did make it to the boss Unfortunately, we were just not able to kill him. We just called it quits at that particular night. I later went back at, with a, a much lower scaled instance just to get it done so I'd have another wing of Fornost opened up. I, I still don't understand why Turbine did not allow people to already have the wings opened up if they'd done the instance before they went to scaling. I guess it just wasn't really feasible to pull it off for some instances, but I mean, stuff like Heligrod or the Rift, I mean, if you've got the title for killing the final boss, have the person unlock all the wings already. I mean, that just, that would be easy to implement as far as I'm concerned. So let's hope that they do that for the Rift, because it's a little late for Heligrod. Uh, then there was uh, Mirkwood Knight, which I signed up for, and I thought we were just going to be doing some of the Three Men's, maybe going to Samoth Ghoul, stuff like that. So I was like, yeah, Guardian will be fine for that. You know, he's not well geared for 75, but for 65 content, he's in pretty good shape, all things considered. And then it turned out we were actually doing Barad Golder, which was a, a bit of a challenge. We didn't even get past Dirt Chest. The main thing about that, I think, was tanking issues, where I don't think that everyone fully understood the aggro mechanic of Dirt Chest, where what he does is he places a minus perceived threat on people, if you fail to properly understand that and, and react to it, it's going to cause you problems. And that was really what was killing us. Now the, the Guardian, well the, we had three tanks in that. There was a Warden, who was basically a backup tank, and there was myself, and then there was the same Guardian from the uh, Fornost run that I'd been in. And after the Fornost run, I actually talked with him and talked some Guardian Tic Tacs and stuff. I helped him figure out what he was doing wrong with aggro building and uh, I say wrong because I think most people will, be, will agree with me. If you start off the fight with Engage, it really doesn't help you out much. Since Engage is an aggro copy and nobody has any aggro to copy at the start of the fight. Just friendly word of advice for any up-and-coming guardians out there. Don't use Engage at the beginning of a fight. You use Engage if a mob peels you, and it's just one. Then you smack them with Engage and they'll come back to you and engages also a nice slow. So that was uh, just a little bit challenging. Took a lot of shots at him, but just weren't able to do it. And once again, I just ended up feeling like my Guardian's just not in a good position. My Captain, I have gone into Dunland, and I have made it through uh, Trumdrang. That was, yes, Trumdrang, I think, was where I started. And I made it to Lagtrev, and I've been starting to do the epic quest there, so he is progressing along. He is now level 67, but uh, festival stuff has been holding his attention, so he has not been leveling anytime recently. And he won't be for as long as he still has to work on the title from winning Hobbit races, or if the dwarves finish off. Uh, of course, 
In the past, I've always had very good luck with choosing my dwarves when it comes to that beer race, which is probably one of the reasons that I enjoy it so much. The hobbits are very hit and miss for me. I think part of the problem with the hobbits is that I'm partial to certain hobbits, whereas with the dwarves, I'm totally impartial. None of them seem any better or worse to me, so I just kind of pick them semi at random, and it seems to work for me. With the dwarf, with, with the hobbits, it's not. It, there's a very clear ranking. Gladys seems to win the most in my mind, so I'll, I tend to lean towards her. Birdie is next in line, and then Mudrick Rumble tends to come in after the other two have had a win streak. You know, after Birdie upsets Gladys one time, Mudrick probably has a chance of winning, and Daffodilly loses, and that's pretty much her position. And I say that because about two years ago when I was doing this, I was out there at the festivals and I was with one other person because of the time of night it was, and they were just mocking Daffodilly the whole time, and we, we waited around for quite a while doing races and stuff. According to this guy who had been sitting there and watching her, she had lost something like 15 races in a row, and 11 of them had been in last place in a row, and when we stood there, she just kept on losing. I, she was just absolutely pathetic. And actually, that's really fun to do if you're feeling bored inside of those races. If you just do slash say and you just start bad-mouthing one of the racers, it can be very entertaining. Some of the other stuff that I've done at those races while hanging around is synchronized dancing, which is always fun when it's very impromptu, and doing instrument stuff. So I've been noodling around doodling and uh, just having fun at the festivals. Aside from that, of course, there's always monster play, where I've been killing things in raids and small groups and doing alright with that. I tried to organize a tribe night feeler type thing and ended up with one person actually coming out and responding to the the actual post that I made but then picked up a couple other people and still made a night of it. I'm probably going to be trying to do that again very soon in the future and uh, not pick a Thursday since I had I eight people tell me how they could not make it on Thursdays. So that was really the main problem was just I picked a bad day to do it on. I've also been making more YouTube videos. I actually started getting back into that just a little bit before the last episode went up, but I forgot to mention it there. I've made a, one more since the last episode went up and put that one up as well. But uh, for making those videos, I try to focus on 1v1s, and I've just been having rotten luck with getting 1 versus 1s. I, I'll find one and I won't have fraps turned on, or I'll find one and then it gets interrupted by people showing up, or all it is is a burglar jumps me from stealth and blows me up. At the same time, Ugmog is now at 6 audacity and uh, about 4,000 commendations, so I'm gonna have 7 fairly soon here. And of course with Rohan being delaying it, it's worth it to go ahead and invest in that extra rank of audacity. and. You know, the beta NDA was lifted, so I've been, there's been a lot of discussion about that. I'm probably going to talk more about that in the main topic or so of the show, or at least in game news. But that's uh, pretty much all the important stuff. So let's just go into game news. Alrighty. In game news, we've got some developer diaries to go over. First off, we have the Runekeeper dev diary, which, as I predicted, Runekeepers and Wardens came in last in that order. The Runekeeper Diary is a short one. Uh, this one also does not have any uh, developer name attached to it or anything. It's anonymously published. Uh, it says, good day to all Runekeepers, so very nice and polite. Uh, basically, it goes over just a couple of changes. New skills are Improved Scribe Spark, which is going to be at level 77. It will add a potent threat reduction. Then there is Improved Rune of Restoration. The uh, Pet Rock is going to gain a Power Restoration effect in addition to its Morale Heal. And then there is Improved Armor of Flame, Winter, and Storm. Each of these skills will add a Morale Bubble in addition to their normal effects. And then they're also tweaking Flurry of Words so that the Evasion Reduction is being changed to a plus 3% incoming critical chance. It means that monsters on the effect of the debuff will be critically hit 3% more often. Now, I've got to be totally honest, Runekeepers already generate so many critical hits, I don't see why there's any reason to make Runekeepers get more critical hits, have even more buffs to give them critical hits to make their opponents more vulnerable to critical hits. Critical hits, as I said last time, are just so 
abundant and overused right now in the game, and particularly in the Runekeeper's case, that it just doesn't really have any real meaning. They notice when, hey, suddenly the, the numbers are smaller for some reason. Why, why are the numbers in a smaller font size? What? Oh, I didn't get a critical hit. What? Probably confuses them when they see a, a regular hit rather than being happy when they see a critical hit. That's, that's just not the way the game should be run as far as I'm concerned. <sighs> anyway, uh, Mystifying Flame is also being tweaked. tweaked. A moderate increase in damage along with a concomitant increase in the amount of threat reduction. So, concomitant... That should be uh, a minimal, a small increase for threat in the threat reduction, moderate increase in damage. So it's gonna probably get about a, I would say, 20% increase in, in damage. If it wasn't particularly powerful, if it was more powerful, it's probably gonna be close to a 10 or 12% increase, something around those lines. Then there are a couple additional tweaks to the traits. Lunar of Peace adds a minus 10% healing threat generation, and Rune of Endurance will also enhance the power restoration of the improved rune of restoration. Uh, and then he finishes off by, well, whoever it is, finishes off by saying, while none of these changes and additions are earth-shattering, we don't feel that the runekeepers are in need of major changes at this time. The one thing that we would really like to fix is the issue with the rune of restoration falling through floors. While we haven't been able to fix this as of this writing, we are still hopeful of at least a partial fix. And honestly, the runekeepers' rocks falling through floors is just one of those wacko things that comes up in programming where you just go why is it doing that I, and it's just completely baffling and those are some of the hardest problems to solve so uh, i wish them luck with trying to fix that but it's just going to be incredibly hard to pin down and figure out where it is all right next up is the wardens so now for the wardens it is edrica deviled egg improved skills and gambits at level 77 is improved hampering javelin it has a two-second root in addition to its slow, so uh, another crowd control effect for the Wardens. Don't know exactly how useful that'll be as far as their tanking role, or even their damage role, but uh, it is a little extra utility on there. The two-second root is really not significant in any major way. It'll stop something from running momentarily, but then they're going to be right back out of it. At level 80, is Resounding Challenge, which is a gambit. It is Fist Shield, Fist Spear slash Javelin. It is a targeted AoE with a range of 25 meters that can hit up to 6 targets in a 10 meter radius of the initial target. In Determination, the skill will provide instant threat, and a high amount of it, to all targets hit. In Recklessness, it does moderate AoE light damage. In Assailant, the skill does moderate AoE light damage, and is a detente. And light meaning the type of damage, not light amount of damage. Level 83 is Call to Battle, which is another gambit. It's Fist Shield, Fist, Spear Fist, which that looks like a yeah, extra fist off of Resounding Challenge, so it should be very similar. Target AoE, range 25, 6 targets, 10 meter radius, initial pulse of medium threat, and then threat over time for determination. In Recklessness, it is damage and then a dot, and in Assailment, it's damage, a dot, and a detente. So the big difference there is damage over time in the recklessness and assailment stances. In determination it's got the threat over time but it looks like the resounding challenge is actually a, a greater amount of upfront threat compared to how much you get from the call to battle. Oh and also it says to be clear neither resounding challenge nor call to battle have damage components in determination. They are purely threat generation skills which avoid breaking combat states on targets. So that is going to be very helpful for Wardens when they're working in conjunction with lore Masters, Because they can throw those out, get uh, some nice instant thread, get a thread over time going without breaking people out of crowd control. So it helps them maintain control of the, of the mobs while allowing them to stay put down the way that they want to be. Quality of life improvements and skill modifications. All assailed gambits which had multiple attack hooks are being condensed into one big attack hook with comparable damage. The Warden, after all, throws only one javelin per skill. All shield spear gambits in assailment are having their ranges extended to 25 meters and can benefit from javelin max range legacy. The assailment versions of Perseverance and Impressive Flourish are swapping effects. 
Persevere will have a ranged damage self buff, and Impressive Flourish will have a life tap. The assailment versions of Safeguard and Maddening Strike are swapping effects. Safeguard will have a ranged damage self buff, and Maddening Strike will have a life trap. Celebration of Skill will provide a 4% ranged damage buff instead of a 3% buff if you currently have Safeguard's ranged damage buff self buffed active. Let me try that one again. Will provide a 4% ranged damage buff instead of a 3% buff if you currently have Safeguard's ranged damage self buff active. The parry buff on Wall of Steel is having its duration extended to 30 seconds. Shield Spear Gambit's Indetermination will now generate a small amount of threat, which is increased by the Shield Spear Threat Legacy. Life Taps will now display exact damage and healing values, courtesy of some new tech from our engineers. Gone is the vagueness from the tooltips of yesteryear. And uh, Trait Lines, Force of Personality now affects all Ward and Gambit damage over time effects. And Legendary Items, the Fist Spear Gambit Threat Legacy will now convey its bonus in percentages, while the Shield Spear Threat Legacy will now enhance the threat generation of Shield Spear Gambit's indetermination, and the threat reduction afforded to Shield Spear Gambit's in assailment has been increased. Alright, so that concludes the war. Now on to the big thing, which uh, I've actually already talked about on the blog when I first found out about it, but I uh, might as well cover it here because it is very important. Here is the letter from the producer regarding the Riders of Rohan update, or rather it's an expansion. It says, we've had a very successful beta program with some of the largest and most active beta player populations we've seen since Moria. The amount and quality of feedback on our largest expansion ever has been fantastic. Thanks to some great efforts from beta players, we've identified issues that we think need to be addressed before we can launch. In order to address these issues and meet our expectations for quality, we're going to need more time. As a result, we've elected to delay our launch to October 15th. And then also goes on to talk about how they are giving pre-order players a little gift to thank them for their patience for waiting. It's basically a bag full of store items. There's a 100% XP boost. There's Slayer Deed Accelerator. There's plus 20% Renown, plus 20% Mount Speed, Tome of Defense, Roll of Finesse. And they also receive 500 Turbine Points. But the big thing is that Rohan is delayed, obviously. Now, when I wrote the blog post, uh, basically the conclusion that I came to was that I was okay with this. I really wasn't super anxious to get to Rohan. Uh, even the whole giving stuff to the pre-order guys, I felt that that was appropriate and that it was fine to only be giving it to the pre-order people because they're the guys who have gone ahead and they, they've thrown down their money and said, yes, I want to go to Rohan, I am ready, the sooner the better, give me my war steed. And uh, they're, they're chomping at the bit already. So they're, they kind of need to be placated. The people more like me, we're okay, we can wait. Take your time, do it right. We are enjoying Isengard. Or we just don't want to pay 40 bucks for a basic version of expansion, let alone 70 for your legendary. That's pretty much where we are, we're at. Then they lifted the beta NDA. And I got a lot more excited about Rohan. <laughs> From the, the, the NDA lifting, uh, we found out a lot of things. Uh, first off, I'm going to just start with monster play because that's the part that I have looked into the most. In Rohan, the major character advancement is done through mounted combat. That is where characters are going to progress and become more powerful. There is no instance cluster released yet. It's going to come later. The armor that's available at endgame from quest gear, the main thing that people are going to look at is the stuff from the city of Snowborn, which has a bunch of dailies. It's constantly being rebuilt and burned to the ground and something along those lines. Doing the Snowborn stuff is apparently going to give pretty good armor. The main thing that's come out though is that the armor advancement for Free Peoples is almost negligible. Uh, this is very similar to where we were when Mirkwood launched, except that with Mirkwood we had a rail that was actually launched with the whole thing and it was only five levels. And people looked at the gear on the raid stuff and they said, you know, there's really no major improvement from what we're already wearing from Moria. And a lot of that was because of the ways that armor values and resistances and mitigations were calculated back then. A lot of that has changed, particularly with Rise of Isengard and with the, a lot of stat unification and stuff and redoing of things. There were a lot of differences in how the system worked back then. Particularly with uncommon mitigations, it was hard to build those without using, uh, aside from virtues and jewelry really, that was where you found uncommon mitigations. 
and armor value really just didn't add much to them. There was very little gap between the mitigation values of heavy armors and the lighter armor classes. And so the, the gear was kind of flat. We've got the same thing here, except no instance cluster. Basically, that means if you've got top-end gear from, say, uh, Tower Orthanc or Drygok or something like that, if you've got decent raid gear, you're not really going to advance much in terms of character progression at the beginning stages of Rohan outside of your Warsteed. The Warsteed is where everything's going to be going until we get the instance cluster. So that means that it kind of solved my little dilemma of do I want to invest in armor now with my seals and medallions. I'm going to go ahead and invest on my guardian because he really could use some more. And I'll take my captain and do the, uh, the snowboard and stuff and get him his armor that way and see how things progress when Rohan actually starts up. The monster players, on the other hand, have had some dramatic increases. Uh, people are reporting some absolutely insane numbers. The big one I hear getting tossed around is 30,000 morale on rank 15 war leaders. Uh, 30,000 morale is absurd, I'll be honest. I really, I really wish morale wasn't inflating the way that it is. But ever since they uncapped stats, well, that's just the way that it is. We went from a good guardian had about 8,000 morale back in Mirkwood to a good guardian has 18,000 in Isengard, or more, or a little bit less, so around there, Eight, 18,000 flat, that's a pretty good ballpark. My guardian's at 8,000. He's still kind of a Mirkwood guardian. <laughs> yes, it's sad. Another, another really big, really important thing that came out, which was something that I was not in their dev diary, but that I mentioned when I went over it, they have done more work on that originally proposed system for commendation rewards that rewards healers for healing people. So commendations, in the dev diary that was released, it said that commendations were pretty much on par with infamy, so it was basically a base of 100, and then the rank bonuses and stuff, and they were looking into other things. Uh, commendations now apparently come in at a base calculated amount of 150 commendations for every player with then other bonuses coming in and such. And basically the, the way it, the metrics work is if you've done damage to the character within 20 seconds of them being within the 20 second period before they died, or you healed somebody who did damage to them within the period of 20 seconds before they died, and your heal was landed on them in those 20 seconds, then you're going to get your commendations. There's no limitation on distance, so you can be on the other side of the map from them if you somehow managed to heal somebody before they did it. Say, oh here's a, a theoretical situation, a defiler drops a heal over time on a reaver as he's mapping. Reaver maps right in, dev strikes something, and kills it. The defiler's going to get his commendations all the way on the other side of the map, whereas before there's what we had, well, especially, and to still have with Infamy, this is not applying to Infamy, only accommodations, is about a 100 meter radius, and if you're outside of there, the uh, Infamy is not a word to you, and it's not a word to anybody else, so it's kind of wasted and thrown away. Commendations aren't going to have that particular problem. Uh, the really cool thing is just that they've finally figured out their tech problems for giving it out to healers, so that is going to be very, very fun to see in action. Uh, another really big important thing is Toxic Carapace on the Weavers. Uh, in the Dev Diary it said that it gave mitigations and a damage reflect both for about 30%. That has changed. Currently it gives no mitigations and it is a damage reflect of 100% damage reflected while the, that particular buff is up. Uh, this is going to be game-changing in the same way that Blight was game-changing, where the Free Peoples have to adapt their tactics. I, the amount of angst that has already cropped up on the forums because of this particular change is pretty impressive, all things considered. It is a lot of angst, and frankly, I'm going to be very interested to see what this is. A lot of them are calling for reductions in the amount of, well, the, the duration of the skill is apparently 30 seconds, and they're, they're calling for reduced duration, they're calling for reduced damage reflect, all kinds of stuff. Uh, probably the best thing that I saw mentioned about this was that it was very humorous to see just how scared the Free Peoples were of their own damage being reflected back at them because they know just how hard they actually hit 
their opponents. And uh, you know, I find that a little humorous myself. And it should be a little eye-opening for everybody. Just uh, once more, you know, as <laughs> the developers themselves said, pound for pound, monsters get out-healed and out-damaged. And everybody knows it, even if they won't admit it. Now, while the Free Peoples are not going to be having major advancements outside of their war steeds, remember, we still have that instance cluster coming, and when that actually lands, that's going to be what really shows us where the potential is for characters in Riders of Rohan. The question's going to be how much improvement is there for the characters based off the armor that's given to them from the instance cluster. And really, the first instance cluster, that's first instance sets, really are basically the standard that's everything's going to get measured by. Because even if they do later add, later on add some more armor sets, typically it's just not going to be as influential in terms of getting stuff done as those first sets are. And for establishing a baseline for what most players are going to end up achieving. Because while a lot of the more hardcore players are going to be able to get the newest, best, and latest armored sets fairly easily. A lot of the more casual people, people who suddenly have stuff come up and aren't able to actually play as frequently as they like or go after things with as much enthusiasm as they might want to, they'll end up being able to work towards those first armor sets and not really having the time to be able to go on to the other ones. They'll finish off that first one and then pretty much be ready for the next expansion and do another content. So once again, watching for those instance clusters is still the thing to keep your eye on because that is where we're going to find out just what the major potential for most players is in Rohan. And that's just going to determine a lot of stuff. Until then, mounted combat looks like where it's going to be at. And uh, honestly, I understand that because with Moria, what we got for a new system was we got legendary items. And really legendary items were what defined Moria and defined character progression after Moria is legendary items, make sure you have good ones and all that stuff. With Siege of Mirkwood, I think they were hoping that the skirmish system would kind of do the same sort of thing where it would be the defining characteristic of Mirkwood and kind of the defining, this is the new way that you play as you do lots and lots of skirmishes. And for some people it was, but it was not to the same effect that legendary items were. Mounted combat looks like another attempt at this kind of redefining and reshaping the way the game is played, and I think that it's going to be a lot more successful. It looks like they've really done their their homework on creating a mounted combat system, they've really done a good job, and I think that it's going to pay off for them because the players are going to appreciate this, and I also believe it's going to allow them to pull in a lot of players from other games and such that uh, people who might not have considered Lotro before for whatever reasons that they had, but they're going to hear about this the fact that Lord of the Rings Online has a real true mounted combat system that is excellent and they're going to want to try it out for themselves. So we'll have to see just how successful Rohan is and how many players it pulls in because I'm predicting right now that Rohan is going to pull in a lot of new players. We're probably going to see Isengard's records get absolutely shattered. So, remember that, I have called that as my prediction, and we will see what happens come probably late November is probably when we'll see a producer's letter talking about anything like that, if it does happen, maybe December. So, keep your eyes peeled for then, and uh, keep that in your head for remembering to remind me about that stuff when it actually happens, whether I, I was correct or not. We will see. Anyway, I think that wraps up all the major stuff for game news. I really can't go through all the NDA stuff. Uh, a lot of it is still going to be changed because they are doing a lot of tweaks to the beta. And I really can't give you a complete picture of like every class and all the stuff that's happened and all the changes that are going in. You need to look into the, the forums yourself if you want to find that out, or just wait until Rohan. Anyway, on to our main topic. Today, for the main topic of this particular episode, I want to talk a little bit about kinships and tribes, which are really the same thing, just a different moniker, because tribes are in monster play, and so you can't really say kinship, because it doesn't really fit the whole theme there. But kinships and tribes, and this is something that uh, was kind of brought up 
to me by looking around on some of my kinships forums and seeing something dug up on the Wanderval forums as well about a particular tribe. And what I want to talk about is one of the defining characteristics of a kinship or tribe, something that really makes it stand out and can give it staying power. And that is the idea behind the kinship. Now, I'm just going to say kinship from now on. It's like, what is the purpose of the kin? Now then, corporations, uh, particularly in business, they often make mission statements, and uh, nonprofit organizations do it, business corporations. They'll make mission statements, and sometimes they can be really insightful into the corporation, sometimes not necessarily so much. Kinships sometimes do the same thing, sometimes they don't. But one thing that I have kind of noticed for myself is that kinships and tribes that don't figure out what exactly they stand for, what their purpose is other than get people together to do stuff, don't have longevity. You gotta have some kind of idea for what is your kinship gonna be doing, what is its goal, if you're gonna be able to have it last and continue to do stuff. Now I'm gonna go ahead and pull up the actual little kinship mission statement type thing for my kinship, which is Remnant. And we actually have one of these, which is kind of the thing I saw that I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder if I can do something about that as a main topic. So here we are. Funny how that stuff works out, ain't it? So anyway, here's what the mission statement for my particular kinship says. Remnant's mission is twofold. First, we strive to foster a genuinely friendly and social atmosphere in the kinship. Second, we are dedicated to helping members experience all that Lotro has to offer. Now, that's fairly general, but at the same time it does give focus, and that's what a good mission statement does, is it's general and open enough that it's not constricting, but it's not so broad that it leaves you directionless. It does give you some idea of where you want to head, and leaves you uh, with options for how to get there. So it's like, okay, we're gonna go to that way, find a way. That's what many mission statements tend to look like. I'm gonna pull up uh, a mission statement or two from some well-known organizations, nonprofit most likely, and we'll take a look at these. Uh, first one's going to be first one is going to be from the Red Cross. I pulled up a, the new mission statement for the Red Cross. So apparently they've updated this thing sometime. Anyway, the mission statement is: the Red Cross prevents and alleviates human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. And that's another example of a mission statement. Uh, what that particular mission statement does is it, instead of, say, giving members a particular direction, although it does do that a little bit, it lets outsiders know what this particular organization does. What do they stand for? What is their place? Now, mission statements aren't necessarily the only way to do it. And to provide an example of this, I'm going to pull up one other corporation here. Uh, this one is General Electric which is actually one of the most successful corporations in the world at this particular time. Uh, you may not believe me if you look at General Motors and think, weren't those two kind of similar organizations founded by like the same guy back 100 years or so ago? Yes, you're right, they were founded together, uh, they kind of went their separate ways. And while General Motors has managed to put themselves in the toilet, General Electric is doing a whole lot better. General Electric does not actually have a mission statement. Instead, it is governed by four ideals which breed the culture General Electric has become famous for. The ideals are imagine, build, solve, lead. So what we have here are a couple of examples of mission statements in the real world and in-game. And I just want to talk about why they're important. What actually does it mean? And what does it mean for someone who wants to start a new kinship or people who are looking for kinships? All right, mission statements, in some cases, they give you a clear idea of what the place actually is. What do they do? A good mission statement will give you at least some idea. Some of them are more clear than others. The Red Cross one, the Red Cross one is very clear on what they do. Alleviate human suffering. And then they tell you how they do it. And everything is pretty clear cut from there. The General Electric version is not necessarily as clear, but at the same time, you can look at that and you see, okay, they follow these ideals is that something I'm interested in? Is that something I'd like to, to be part of? The mission statements, or the, the guiding principles for a corporation, a kinship, they define the organization itself, and they help everyone understand them. So, 
if you fail to have something that defines your kinship, if you don't have a clear cut, this is what our goal is, you're going to struggle because people are going to join and they're going to be like, well, I don't see any particularly clear cut goal here. Let's try to take the kinship this way. And if you allow them to do that, your kinship will pull itself apart. If you don't have something that you can point to and say, no, we can't really do that because the kinship is this. If you guys want to try to do that, that's okay, but you got to stay within these guidelines. There's different ways to handle situations like that, but if you don't have some kind of foundation that your kinship is built upon, you're going to just set yourself up for trouble. At the same time, as a player looking for kinships, what you want to do is you want to kind of shop around. If you're being potentially reproached by recruiters for a kinship, a good thing to ask them is what is the kinship about? If they cannot tell you what the kinship's goal is, what their mission statement is, or anything like that, don't even give them the time of day. Uh, most kinships, when they're actually recruiting, they will tell you right up front in their recruitment messages what the kinship actually does and what they're supposed to do. RP kinships are like, we are RP and we RP this way and this is what we do. Other kinships are going, we're hardcore raiding kinship. We're uh, we're social and friendly. And well, that's really all three types, honestly. That's pretty much all you ever see advertised. There's different spots within the spectrum, but it's important to figure out where you stand, not only as maybe a kinship leader, but also as a kinship member. Like, do I want to be in this kind of kinship? I've personally been in pretty much every type of kinship that there is, except for the hardcore raiding one. And honestly, the kind that I prefer for myself, because of the way that I play the game, is a fairly friendly one that does instances, does things together, but that is not particularly demanding. That lets you play the game on your time, and they're there to, to let you help, and they have you help out wherever you can, and it's understanding about the fact that this is a leisure activity. Kinships that want more demand on my time and resources and stuff like that, I can't really go with comfortably. For, for me, really, I had a, an experience with trying to play one particular game, which was uh, Tribal Wars, where I found that I could not play the game on my time schedule. I had to play it on its time schedule. And pretty much, I, as soon as I could leave that game, I left it and I never came back because I cannot afford to let a game dictate to me what the schedule I need to play on is. And the, for most people, I imagine that's very much the same. I mean, some people might be able to pull it off for a little while, letting a game dictate when they set stuff up, but in general, that's going to lead to trouble, problems, and failure, particularly in real life. At the same time, most kinships aren't going to be problematic like that. Typically, people are pretty understanding. They know that they will run into those same kind of situations, so they understand that if they're understanding about not being able to do stuff at one particular time for their members, that their members and leaders and stuff will be understanding with them when they have to go deal with other stuff and not be in-game. Good kinships always have stuff set up for that. Poor kinships haven't thought of it. And that's another key thing for looking at setting up kinships, is just how much have you thought it out? Uh, when Mathram and Drilorin were trying to set up the Oakleaf Order, they had an idea for what they wanted to do, but there were a lot of details that they never thought out. They tried twice, and both times the Oakleaf Order got nowhere. And the big problem why, now looking at it in retrospect, is because they didn't have a well-thought-out plan and strategy for how they were going to accomplish their goals. They didn't have a particular mission statement, they didn't have an idea of how to go about doing the stuff, and as a result, it just floundered. Now before I conclude this whole section or thing, I do want to say, it's not imperative that you must have a mission statement or something like that. Sometimes, depending on the size of your kin, or just the people there, you don't necessarily need something like that. You all understand each other, or you talk to each other in real life and outside of the game itself. But when you start getting into larger and larger groups of people, it becomes more and more important to either have a very selective recruitment process or to have a clearly defined mission statement for, your, for the kinship. The example I want to give of the selective recruitment process is the White Hand, which is the tribe I'm part of. We don't have any specific clear mission statement or ideals or anything posted up anywhere. Instead, what happens is 
the recruitment process is very specific and thorough in as many ways as it can be, where uh, the officer is the leader. When they are looking at potential candidates, they take a very close look at the people and they think about how are they going to fit in with the other people we already have in the tribe. This is the kind of stuff that goes on here that they've got to be able to adapt with and handle. Are they going to mesh with the group or are they not? And they look at matching personalities instead of just recruiting numbers. If you go about setting up your kinship or tribe that way, it can work. It's very time intensive. It can be very difficult because you have to look very closely at all potential recruits, but it can be done and it can be done successfully. So that is always another option, but by far the easier option is definitely to plan out a specific mission statement or some kind of defining characteristic and then think about the other contingencies. Setting up a kinship is a big commitment. If you're going to do it, do it right. Take the time to think about all the potential problems. Talk with other kin leaders if you possibly can. Find out about the stuff that came up that they had no idea might have happened and that blindsided them and they had to deal with. There's going to be all kinds of crazy stories about things like that. Trust me. But if you go ahead and do your homework and do your research, it can save you a lot of trouble. Anyway, uh, that was uh, talking about mission statements, kinships, and how to successfully create a kinship that's going to work, be a little bit lasting, and how to go shopping for kinships a little bit. Anyway, uh, I, I think that concludes the main topic, which I don't even know how to categorize that thing. <laughs> We'll just leave it titleless and go on to player news and pretend that whole incident never happened. Alright, in player news, we've got a whole lot of nothing! Really haven't had any comments on the last episode, haven't had any emails, anything like that. Uh, had a couple comments on the blog post about the uh, NDA being lifted but they were really talking about war leader stuff specifically and I already answered that so that's pretty much not particularly relevant to the podcast itself so really nothing to talk about in terms of player news uh, anyway I would like to hear from people in player news I, I want to hear what you think about the podcast especially right now I'd, I'd really like feedback on how you think the podcast stands because it has been a while since Matthew and Lauren have left and I kind of want to have some kind of sounding board to tell me how I'm doing. I mean, I have some idea myself of where do I think the podcast is doing? Is it doing well? And are people really enjoying the way everything's being presented and stuff? Uh, I'd like to hear from you. What, what have you thought about how the podcast has been over these past, uh, I want to say, eight, nine months or so? What What's stuff that's kind of getting annoying? What's stuff that's good? Have you liked the large influx of guests that we had when we were doing the whole roundtable thing? Stuff like that. I, I want to hear from you. Uh, also, if you would like to be a guest on the show, please send an email. Email is the best way to do that. Send me an email telling me, hey, I'd like to be a guest on the show. This is what I play. This is kind of what I think I might be able to talk about, but these are the things that I do in-game, and I will get back to you and talk to you about that. I, I would love to have more guests on the show, but I don't necessarily have time to go hunting down guests after I figure out what I'm going to have them on to talk about for. Uh, if you just want to do a, a regular interview about stuff, uh, that's perfectly fine. We'll figure that kind of stuff out, but first I'm going to need some volunteers, otherwise I have to go hunt people down. But also, I want feedback. What do you think of the show? Do you like it? Do you like the way it's going? Are there things you like changed? Uh, if you'd like to suggest a, a topic for some a couple main topics, like something to, to focus upon for a little while, like uh, rating mechanics, uh, anything. Uh, we've done rating mechanics back when we first started, but we never got super in-depth on some of the stuff there. And there's there's a lot of things that could be talked about in Lotro, but I want to know what you guys want to hear about right now, because it makes it simpler for me to handle, because I'm only one person trying to run this entire podcast, and it lets me get to the stuff that you want to hear about sooner rather than later. Anyway, to get in touch with me, to send those emails and talk about things and all that, you can send an email to throughthepalantir at gmail.com. If you would like to go to the blog, you can go to www.throughthepalantir.blogspot.com and you will be at the blog. 
and you can leave comments and read things and look at ancient episodes that we now look upon with shame and horror and see just how bad things were. Obviously the worst is episode 7, but even the episodes shortly after that were really not that bad. I was listening to episode 12 the other day looking for a little sound clip about the sound clip where Jaloran talks about looking for at back at previous episodes with Shames like, hey, remember that episode like four episodes ago? Yeah, that was terrible. Uh, which I included in the last episode, talking about an episode about four episodes before that one. Yeah, <laughs> it's all still true. Nothing, in some ways, nothing has changed on this podcast. It's a little scary when I think about that. But anyway, you can do that there. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at ttpalantir at twitter.com. There's also a link to our Twitter from the blog itself. The Twitter is great for finding out when new episodes come out. I always post something as soon as a new episode is up on the Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. I did update the Facebook page. I don't know if I remember to mention that when I posted up the last episode. It did get updated to uh, have all of the roundtables mentioned that the last roundtable was up. Uh, so if you want to just easily find all the roundtables together in one spot, the Facebook page does have that. Uh, I might try to do something, but really, they're all chronologically categorized right there because I did all the roundtable right in the continuous streak. So they're really already kind of lined up on iTunes or Zoom or even the blog if you just go back chronologically, then you'll find all of them set up right there. But the Facebook has them all in one little page together, so that's pretty cool. And uh, finally, if you feel so inclined, you can reach us by Telegram. But I cannot give you the number because I need to retain some level of anonymity. So if you want to send a Telegram, good luck finding me. <laughs> So anyway, uh, that's all the ways you can contact us, and man, I, that, that telegram thing was really bad. I need to come with a, with a new gag to use for how you can contact us. Coming up with those on the fly is a little bit harder than it sounds. The moose one was inspired, though. I still have yet to receive any messages by moose. Uh, I know that some people have got to be out there with their tranquilizer guns looking for a moose. Maybe they just have the bad luck to live in a country or continent where there really aren't many moose. Probably a couple Australians who are looking for a moose desperately to send me a message, but uh, sadly, uh, there are no moose in Australia. <laughs> there are no moose in Australia. <laughs> it's so tempting to say meese or moosin. <laughs> it really is. But no, I do know that the plural of moose is moose, and the singular of moose is also moose. When speaking of moose, you, jo you just say moose, and if you only keep it at moose, you'll be safe. <laughs> no matter how tempting it is to add S's or change O's to E's or put an N on the end. Moosen! Alrighty. So anyway, that's all for this time. Enjoy yourselves. Listen to the blooper reel, there's probably some stuff that really does belong in quarantine inside of there. And remember that you have been incapacitated by a podcast. Goodbye.
Oh, I got an idea here. Let's check for reviews on the iTunes store. Yeah, let's check the podcast page in iTunes and let's see what we've got as far as reviews. I don't think I've done a review look on the uh, iTunes, at least on air, since episode... Ooh, this is going to be tough. We did it in episode 10, and I think I did it again in episode... 22 or something like that. I don't remember off the top of my head. But we haven't done a whole lot of these. And none recently. I can guarantee that. Alright, let's see. Through the Palantir. Da da da. New free to play user. I remember that one. We talked about that on episode 10. Too many people talking. You remember that one too? Hmm. Uh, here we go. It says, I love the podcast by Anti-Sackville Backins. Now, that's an interesting name. That is a good name. I don't have a character creep side, but I still love the podcast and think all Lotro players should listen to it. Thanks, guys, and keep up the good work. I only wish they came out more frequently. Thanks again, Delogosh of Windfola. Struggle. Subscribe to this cast well a while back because I've got several 60-65 to 65 characters and haven't touched endgame slash PvMP content. I just listened to the Pirates of Ecuador cast and decided that I'm unsubscribing to your podcast, but I want to explain to you why. In increasing order of importance. You know, I think I've, re- I've covered that one. Yeah, I, I remember that particular review. Um, ooh, possibly the worst Lotro podcast. I've tried to listen to this podcast a number of times. Episode 7 was the worst waste of time. At least two of the three speakers are also trying to participate in a raid. Please desist. That's an... Oh, okay, they must be all ranked by an order of the rating given, so that that explains a little bit. Interesting, I did not know iTunes did it that way. Ooh, this one looks new. As a new free-to-play user, I was looking to find a podcast on Lotro. Having free-to-play in the episode name, I got it, and I liked it. Sure, the sound quality is that of a third world junior high. No, that one's not new. 2010, well, that's no. Okay. Now there's the last uh, review left on the podcast was July 27th, 2011. And that was anti-Sackville Baggins. So there's really nothing to, t- to do there. Man, we really have no player news. Let's check the Zune Marketplace. <laughs> now the last time I was at the Zune Marketplace, there was absolutely nothing. Let's hope that someone has downloaded something from the Zune market and has decided to rate the thing because this is pretty much our last gasp for player news. <laughs> and if there's nothing here, then all the stuff of looking at it for iTunes and Zune, that's all going in the blooper reel where it's going to be quarantined and then forgotten and deleted from memory. All right, the internet is loading up the page. Run through the penalty. Okay, here we go. Members. I don't even know what that is supposed to mean. Well, everything is loaded up properly. Interesting. Uh, podcast reviews. Zero. Well, that settles it. Yeah, absolutely no player news whatsoever. And that's why we do it. It's fun and I enjoy it. Uh, and also a little bit about free people's item and the gear. Alright, first off, I... Blah, 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 blah. Man, this is going to be so much editing. Ugh. Just giving myself more work. When will I stop doing this? Giving myself more work, not the podcasting. And a minstrel. And there was one other thing. What was our other class? And then there are a couple addition, additions, uh, additional tweaks for my tribe, for my, <laughs> I mean, for my kinship, which is. And uh, finally, if you feel so inclined, you can reach us by Telegram. But I can't give you the number because I need to remain su- to retain some level. 
but I cannot give you the number because I need to retain some level of anonymity. So, if you want to send a telegram, put in random 10-digit numbers and start tap, tap, tapping away, and good luck finding me. <laughs> Okay, that one's going straight to the blooper reel. That one just did not work at all. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, a lot of the other podcasts, they've been talking about all the Chance Thomas music that gets released. And they do that because, in all honesty, they are absolutely insane when it comes to podcasts. Uh, they, they just pump them out one a week, and they just keep doing that. They're hardcore podcasters and often casual gamers particularly cstm stands out for being guilty of this they are the most hardcore podcasters i know of and yet they're the casual stroll to mordor that whole joke about hardcore sprint to mordor is like yeah if you're talking about your podcast schedule <laughs> but anyway they talk about the chance thomas stuff mostly because they are desperate for news to fill up their episode stuff now one thing that they keep on mentioning on those particularly with the the chance thomas's theme for rohan is they keep on mentioning or having the chat room say to them, because they do live podcasts, how it sounds like Firefly in some ways. So, well, uh, I think I'm going to go one further than just saying that it gives Firefly vibes. And, uh, well, if you don't like my way of doing this stuff, then why haven't you sent me an email saying that you hate it when I sing? This is going to be in the blooper reel already, as you already hear. So it should technically be safe, but uh, it's your own fault if you said nothing. So anyway, uh, here is the, the theme for Rohan by Chance Thomas with Firefly stuff. <laughs> 